0: Hello and welcome to another interview from the blog of the Journal of the History of Ideas. I'm Simon Brown and I'm speaking with Sophia Rosenfeld, the Walter H. Enberg Professor of History at the University of Pennsylvania. Professor Rosenfeld works in the intellectual history of the transatlantic age of revolutions, and she has written books on the history of signs and gestures in the French Revolution and the politics of common sense in the 18th century. Her new book, Democracy and Truth, A Brief History, shows how contemporary concerns over how we reconcile science, scholarship, and expertise with democracy are not so contemporary after all, and have persisted and changed since their first articulation in the Enlightenment. We'll be talking about epistemology and politics, common sense and expertise, and the long history behind our putatively post-truth moment. I wanted to start off by asking how you came to write Democracy and Truth. One of the guiding arguments of the book is that the tensions between our commitments to democracy and to expertise or to public intellectual life goes much longer back than most commentators today would claim. So I was wondering to what extent the idea of your book took a long time and was a long time coming, and to what extent it was a response to concurrent political moment.
1: Yeah, that's a that's a super question because the answer is, of course, in some ways both. So I would say I wrote this book, unlike other books uh, that I've written, quickly, and it was it's more like a long essay than a um, you know a deeply researched book. And in that sense, it was really a response to a moment. Like everybody else, after the election of the presidential election of 2016, I found myself um, kind of a little. Obsessed might not be too strong a word with the news. I was reading constantly about what was happening. I was reading commentary. I was reading the Times, you know. Um, and I was also reading a lot of kind of historians weighing in on the subject. And I was offering occasionally my own little pieces uh, in the more mainstream press, trying to put what was happening in a, temp- in a sort of historical perspective. And It occurred to me finally that the answer to sort of how to get over my news obsession might be to try to think about the news in terms of the very kinds of questions that I think I've been trying to wrestle with for years, uh, which really are about the history of epistemology and its relationship to politics. And I hadn't written specifically on the question of truth before, but I'd written about lying and I'd written about common sense and I'd written about uh, language and and all kind and free speech and a lot of related questions. And I thought it might be helpful and also might be good for me to try to bring together my long-term historical interests with an analysis of the world around us right now. So I sort of put on hold some things that somehow seemed less urgent after the election and after Brexit, and took this up and wrote it, you know, in a sense, in a very short space of time, but it touches on things I've been thinking about for a long time. You you take that
0: long historical narrative of the present back, and you begin really with the Enlightenment, and you begin the later 18th century. And your account really begins with Kant and his famous distinction between the public and the private roles of scholars in, in, in what is Enlightenment. And as you note that Kant when he wrote this was writing in an absolutist state that had no real commitments to democracy. So let kind of start off the narrative of your book. How is it that Kant and then kind of some contemporaries like Condorcet, Jefferson, destelle how do they capture some of those central tensions that you trace up into the present day?
1: Yeah, it might not be everybody's choice for sure to start the story in the middle of the enlightenment. and. My own bias, of course, as a scholar of the Enlightenment, is probably to think everything starts there. But I do think that there is a um, a profound way in which any discussion of truth in particular has to start in the middle of the Enlightenment. Maybe not any discussion of democracy, but any discussion of truth in a democracy does. Insofar as, though Kant was hardly interested in all the tenets of what we would call modern democracy, he was obsessed with the question of how do we know anything and how are we going to learn anything about the world, and how can we be sure about what we know about the world? And that, of course, is one of the great preoccupations of most 18th century thinkers. And those fewer 18th century thinkers who take up the question of a republic, in a sense, are really already starting from the premise that a a good politics is one that advances truth and that allows both free play for a certain amount of ideas to circulate, but all of this in the service of getting closer to something like truth. So Kant, of course, um, isn't really ever writing about modern democracy, but he does put his finger early on on some of the key problems of democratic truth, including what, who do we trust? Can we get ideas from books? Can we get ideas from tradition? Can we learn everything for ourselves? who's equipped to know what, um, in what capacity are you allowed to question, and in what capacity uh, are you best off following the rules. Many of those questions, which are very contemporary, actually make a brief kind of cameo appearance in Kant's little essay, What is Enlightenment?
0: It does seem like, as you described this period in the book, that one of the ways this question about truth does start to reach questions about democracy or need distribution is in d- debates about education and kind of who deserves education who gets education and who kind of deserves the opportunity to to actually pursue this kind of truth and particularly talk to it's a little bit about jefferson and, and benjamin rush in america uh as a kind of an interesting <laughs> example of this can you can you kind of talk a little bit about maybe just some of the different ways that people think about how education and the opportunity to pursue truth ought to be distributed in the period.
1: Sure, I mean, there's nothing obvious about the idea that being a part of a Democratic or Republican state is going to entail a right to education. But it's a question that almost every thinker in an early republic has to wrestle with at some point. And there are really two kinds of questions. There's how much education do you need simply to function as a citizen, which is generally a question about the provision of something like primary education. And then there's a question about how do you mold educated elites, either people who are going to be political leaders directly or the kind of knowledgeable experts, as they become known in the 19th century, who will be in a position to advise government, and that whether that's as engineers or doctors or, um experts in politics itself uh, mathematicians and that's about the provision therefore of higher education and of course one of the interesting things is that Americans and French people solve that problem quite differently after the age of revolutions in terms of trying to think about whose responsibility it is to provide education to this day Americans have a different answer in that for instance higher education is not uh, a public good in the same way there are public institutions but they're public, but it's still, um, you know, one, one pays for higher education in a way that Europeans don't. And in fact, in many parts of the world, people don't. Uh, and this it goes back to very old debates that start as early as the 1780s, and 90s, about whether education is a kind of public or a private good, And also about whether we're better off with more educated people or educated people, in a sense, get too big for their britches and start demanding things and wanting things and having expectations that society can't fulfill. All of those questions are at play um, early on. And I would say in some ways, every time we have debates even today about education, they are, in a way, proxies for debates about who gets to define what knowledge is and who gets to deploy it to do what
0: and you you bring up exactly what i was going to ask next and in in relation to this question uh you're saying how especially in the in the erection of uh, the institutions of higher education in france after the revolution you see the beginning of a training of a new kind of expert or uh, this category of expertise is those educated people who have the higher education to advise government becomes particularly urgent uh, I was wondering if you could just talk a bit about how expertise becomes a salient category in the nineteenth century. It looks like it could be a little bit different from what Kant is talking about regarding public intellectuals. So what how, how does expertise differ and and why is it in the nineteenth century that expertise becomes the the important category here?
1: Yes, that's a really good point because public intellectuals aren't what we call today specialists and specialists is another 19th century term, which is to say as knowledge gets more complex, a smaller number of people are going to know different parts of it. Uh, There'll be a kind of division of labor in the intellectual sphere that matches the division of labor in other enterprises. And out of that grows experts, people with very specialized training to know a particular domain, neither Kant nor Jefferson could be called really a specialist. Uh, And in that sense, even an expert, maybe Kant a little more in the realm of philosophy, but even so wrote on so many different things and participated in a kind of public sphere where there was an expectation of a kind of generalist knowledge. Um, But the two great developments in some ways within the history of democracy in the 19th century, are on the one hand the growth of what we would now call democratization, which is more and more people um, participating in the political sphere and even in not just in formal ways, but formal ways even as voters, which suggests a kind of democratization of knowledge too, combined with a growth of the state and the growth of expertise uh, that leads in a very different direction towards a kind of special core group of people who are assumed and trusted to know more uh, than the general public about specific issues and to come to that knowledge on the different foundations, different epistemic foundations, which is to say um, not through everyday experience, but rather through specialized training, whether that be mathematical or um in, in the principles of physics and math and or whether that be um, training in economics or training in medicine or any of a variety of kind of special domains that over time develop their own societies, their own journals, their own departmental structures within universities um, and sometimes even whole branches of government uh, organized around them.
0: Yeah, and it's in this... This period in the 19th century that you see on the one hand, as you describe the developing importance of expertise and the developing importance of the higher education that creates it, and on the other hand, the, the reaction to expertise that you describe as populist, and you say that this kind of critique of the, expert, of the experts draws on a concept that was very important in your last book, particularly common sense as the corrosive, uh, critique of, of expertise and the kind of authority that that supposedly lends. Can you just talk a little bit about what this common sense critique of expertise might look like in the 19th century and, 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 and later, what forms do it, does it take and how does it look different? Yeah.
1: So, and yes, I mean, the, the fascinating thing about common sense, or if you even want to call it something like common knowledge, uh, is that it can work in marvelously productive ways and can work in sort of anti-democratic ways both. So, at its best, notions of ordinary people knowing things simply because they've led ordinary lives... Uh, has been a helpful spur to all sorts of popular social movements and has helped bring about, for instance, the in, um, the possibility of women's participation in politics, the idea that uh, women participate in the economy, in raising of children, in social life, and have an extensive body of not just opinions, but knowledge on which they can draw in order to participate as citizens and that they don't need some kind of highfalutin training or language just to express themselves, and in fact they can then request and even demand education, but that they start from somewhere already is vital to various social movements. Um, And the 19th century is full of them, as is the 20th century, and we still see claims made on behalf of people based in productive ways on what they know. The dangerous part of what I would call populism is not the same as popular knowledge. Populism takes common sense in, I think, a very particular direction and suggests that, in many cases, some kind of common wisdom of the people is the only way of knowing, or at least the only legitimate way, and usually starts from a critique that has other forms of knowledge and knowledge providers as having usurped some kind of power um, or capacity that once belonged to ordinary people, and that it's necessary to throw that out in order to Uh, return to a world in which common sense is the dominant mode out of which politics operates. Um, You might see hints of that today, for instance, in something like, to make this a little more concrete, if you say, ordinary people in my neighborhood, when they want to keep their neighbors out, put up a fence. So I don't need experts to tell me about immigration flows, and I don't need numbers about who's coming and from where and when. It's obvious to me Collectively, it's obvious to all people that if you put up a fence around a nation, you keep people out the same way you keep people out of your backyard. Um, That kind of translation that says there's no space for knowing, hearing other voices in that conversation or um, getting knowledge from other sources turns into what I would call a populist style. Populism not having much content, but being something more like a style or even, I would say, a narrative that shapes Uh, politics, and then is often used to sort of anti-democratic practices. So it has both democratic potential and uh, anti-democratic potential, I would say, built into it. But just as you suggest, much of the, the growth of the idea of the validity of common sense happens hand in hand with the growth over time of specialization and expertise and a sense of um, a jargon that's too complex and maybe meaningless for ordinary people, um, the entrance of abstractions into politics that have no real substance, uh, a sense that, in fact, a politics rooted in expertise is a misguided one.
0: Yeah, and it's it struck me because there seem to be ways in which that common sense argument or that series of common sense arguments that you describe does seem to mirror some of the arguments of the experts at the same time, and the way that expertise, the way that people might advocate for the good results of expertise. In particular, it seems like both of them agree to some extent that, well, if we just, just trust our kind of knowledge, we won't have these needless disagreements. Uh, this yes. great, great quote that you give uh, from Voltaire when he said there are no sects in geometry. And it seems like... <laughs> there's a, a kind of a mirroring where the common sense argument seems similar, which is to say, if we all just listen to common sense, we wouldn't need sects. We wouldn't need to disagree in the way that we do. So it seems, I, I don't know if you yes. see that there's a kind of mirroring there.
1: Uh, that's that's I, I, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because that is one, I, th- I hope, of the major arguments of the book is precisely that a kind of anti-pluralism is the end result of Either a politics that's dominated by experts, or what we might today call technocrats, who don't, who start to only hear themselves and start to only imagine themselves as having the requisite knowledge to solve problems, and fail to pick up on a variety of other voices and needs, uh, can be very similar to a politics that it operates out of a populist font. So that there are I, there are kind of mirrors images, um, the classic story that people love to use to talk about the limits of technocratic points of view, for instance, are um, international organizations that come up with policies all over the world to solve problems like water supply that fail to take into account of local practices, local traditions, the kind of know-how on the ground about water, and therefore are complete. end up being just as useless as things like a border wall because they come... They have emerged without a proper kind of dialogue between um, people who have technical knowledge and people who have everyday knowledge um, or even multiple versions of all of the above. So while democratic truth practices are by necessity messy and contentious, the positive in them, if they operate properly, is that they do produce a kind of clash of different voices out of which one hopes that um, something like policies can emerge. It's
0: clear from this interest, both in your current, in in democracy and truth, and from your earlier work on common sense, that you're interested in these deep changes in the way people think about epistemology. And so this leads to some theoretical or methodological questions And that you talk a lot about in your essay, uh, your essay on lying, which came out in a recent collection called The Worlds of American Intellectual History. And in it, you talk about this this intellectual history that's focused on epistemology, on questions of knowledge. And in particular, you advocate for what you call an enlightenment-inspired history of the human mind considered in concert with a history of politics and social life. So I wonder, is this how you think of your own work in this book and in your previous work on common sense and on signs in the French Revolution? Do, do you find that this work fits in that aspiration? And Kelsey, can, can you talk a little bit about how you see that relationship between histories of the way people think and histories of the politics in which they in which they work?
1: Yeah, I mean, so a, that's a, a, a tough but really interesting question to ponder. I think in retrospect, I see a very great logic in it all. Probably as I was writing these various things, it was much less apparent to me that this was all sort of one thing led to the next. It's much, it's very easy as humans to kind of give coherent narrative structures to things after the fact, if you know what I mean. So now it all looks like I planned this out, but of course I didn't really. Though I, could, I can say that certain things have sort of obsessed me from the beginning. And... I have always been interested in how a kind of history of mentalité or a history of the way people think about the the kinds of questions that are rarely explicit, but sort of submerged in everything, how those ideas shape what we take to be politics in any given moment. So in my earliest work, I was interested in how people thought about language and symbols and signs, and not the kind of thing people are generally very articulate about, but about which people often have very profound thoughts. Uh, and they are, but they're not the fault lines around which politics are generally divided up. And what I've always been curious about, since you know, learning about the history of Montalité as a Think as an undergraduate back in the 1980s, a million years ago, uh, is what happens if you start trying to do that kind of work but connect it to politics? And what I've found over time is that what started as a kind of set of empirical questions led me more and more to want to think also in normative terms, which I think for a historian is fairly unusual. So in my first book, the question had little to do directly with contemporary politics, though you could maybe sort of read some things between the lines. But in a very conventional historical way, I was interested in a problem in the past. And if it had implications for the present or larger philosophical implications, those were for the reader to determine, though I was already interested in thinking about the kinds of categories that don't belong to the right or left but undergird a politics so thoroughly that they're almost embedded in the political world of a a, a particular moment and how those develop and change. By the time I was working on the Common Sense Project, I think I felt slightly bolder and was more willing to sort of make some connections to the present and try to draw some larger claims. Um, In this, I was inspired as much by the work of Hannah Arendt as anybody else, who I think is probably one of the great thinkers of all time. Not that I always agree with her, but in terms of thinking about how the history of thinking is connected to the history of political life and political thought. And over time, I guess that's gotten more explicit. The most recent book, Democracy and Truth, starts with the present. It really foregrounds the present. But I would call it something of an exercise in philosophical history, which is what I am interested in at the moment, insofar as I'm not trying to offer prescriptions, I'm not writing a history that leads to policy recommendations very directly. Um, More, I think it's a history that can lead to sort of philosophical conclusions that then offer themselves up as the foundations possibly for thinking about politics today. So when I say philosophical history, I mean, what can historians contribute to the kind of normative debates that are generally um, undertaken by political theorists and by, um, well, really people in almost every field except history, because historians tend to shy away from making claims. They're interested generally in the specificity of different moments. But even larger claims about the specificity of, of particular moments are themselves normative claims often. And um, I would like to see if, I, if it is possible, I'm still experimenting in this direction, with a kind of history that maybe operates somewhere in the boundaries between political theory, history, criticism, um, somewhere in that space. I think sometimes political theorists have tried to do this drawing on historical materials, it's less common for historians to do it, though there are some excellent examples, certainly. Yeah, part of,
0: it seems what you could say some of your work is doing is to try to, on the one hand, show the history of some of the concepts that we use in daily life and in politics without thinking about their historicity. And so to kind of either expand our possibilities for imagining what they can be or to, to denaturalize what we expect uh, something like common sense to mean. Is this kind of how you imagine your work?
1: Absolutely. That's that's more eloquently put than I might come up with a description of my own work um, in that capacity. Yes. I mean, I, I really took up the challenge of writing about common sense precisely because I thought, what's the... What concept, by definition, is supposed to be ahistorical and can I historicize that? And common sense is precisely supposed to be that which doesn't change with history. Uh, You know, you put your hand in the fire, it burns you. That's that's common sense and that's not supposed to vary across the ages. But in fact, all of what constitutes common sense, as we know, is very culturally specific. And even, I hope to show and hope I have shown, the very idea that there is such a thing as common sense is a historical category to begin with and giving it some, and the idea that it should be the foundations for, for our politics is a very particular and actually historically peculiar idea uh, that's really quite modern. The idea that common sense has anything to do with politics is, has been both highly influential and um, rarely understood to be historical precisely because it doesn't sound historical. And so I'm very much interested in finding those categories that are so ubiquitous, so familiar to us, and generally seemingly so apolitical that we don't assume they have either a politics or a history. And, uh, and then seeing what happens, as you say, denaturalizing them taking them out of their sort of familiarity as much as possible, and then hopefully from that being able to come back to something like a philosophical history. So to give you another example, I'm working right now on a project on the history of choice making, and I think we widely assume across the right and left divide that choice is a central element of freedom. It's true for consumer culture, it's true for democracy, it's true for human rights ideas. It's prevalent in our culture. We might argue about what should be chosen, but the idea that choice and freedom go together has become quite, um, it's not something you find too many people questioning, whether we're talking about school choice, reproductive choice, or anything else. That said, any historian knows that freedom has not always been imagined as a matter of individual choice and that there's a a long and interesting story about how we came to think of choices so central to the modern conceptions of freedom and across so many different domains from politics to our romantic lives to our consumer selves um, even to our professional lives so again i hope to be able to tell a story this time i'm going to do it a little differently but i hope to be able to tell a story in which something that seems like a taken for granted in our culture Um, turns out to have a kind of deep history, and from that deep history, I hope it's then possible to weigh in on contemporary debates about questions like, are we overwhelmed with choice today, has choice been taken so far as an idea that we don't recognize the way it disguises other forms of constraints, Um, have we lost the capacity for social action because individual choice has become both so anxiety-provoking and so time-consuming? There are a lot of interesting questions like that that social scientists have been raising for a while, everyone from behavioral economists to political theorists. What historians haven't done yet, I think, is actually look at the fact that we haven't always conceptualized choice as a question of freedom. And we might be able to say something about that debate that hasn't been said and reframe it in certain ways, offer kind of new axes for approaching it if we are to try to explore exactly what happened over what period of time and in what places that made choosing things off menus of options come to seem like a very ordinary part of life and an expected part of life rather than an unusual experience.
0: I look forward to reading more about that and hearing more about the the choice the, about choice and in, and in, in your work on that and it, it, that along with what you were describing is your influence and your interest in the in, in the historicity of these ideas that we take so much for granted. You mentioned uh, the influence that you draw from Hannah Arendt and her own uh-huh. writing on lying on truth. And on common sense, and I wonder the extent to which, as you say, you do agree with her, and the, and the places in which you might disagree with her on any of these topics about which you both have written.
1: Yeah, I don't. I don't think one should read Hannah Arendt as a historian. Um, I find her methodologically interesting, and continually so. But to take, for instance, on revolution, I don't think. I would agree with much of what she has to say about the American or French revolutions, the subject I know best. I can say less about her writing, which she does on antiquity, for instance. Um, That said, I don't think she has to be read as getting it right on the history. I think she can be read as somebody who's constantly kind of using the past to think about the present and also looking at the present to try to reframe the past. And the way she keeps those two things in constant dialogue interests me. I think of her as a historian, and I think I've written this various places, who doesn't just um, write a kind of transnational history, but writes a kind of trans um, chronological history in which she, feels comfortable moving across space and and time equally to try to kind of think, as she puts it, think what we're doing, approach the world around us at a certain level of abstraction, because she's thinking about big questions, but using the, the developments of history to give that a kind of specificity. So it's not just abstract historical, not just abstract philosophical theorizing, but she has real people engaging in real things and real ideas at various moments that provide kind of material to work with or material to think with. And I've found that continually kind of inspiring. Um, so for instance, lying and in truth is something about which Arendt has had a lot to say over the years, much of it extremely interesting, though I think there are also things that she couldn't have predicted and couldn't have known about her own truth culture that you know now seem sort of absent from her work but choice for instance i would say she says very little actually about choice not one of her central preoccupations but that doesn't mean one can't bring a slightly Arendtian sensibility to thinking about it um precisely because it's at once a category that's absolutely everywhere it crosses all of history and yet it means something different and ends up having different uh political valences at different moments and that really fascinates me.
0: Yeah, and that leads exactly to where as you yourself said, you begin and end in your most recent book and that's particularly with the present moment and the perception that many commentators have that we are now living in a post-truth moment.
1: And yes. you're
0: very you're you're critical of this kind of thinking particularly the way in which it doesn't get, it doesn't understand the long history of the problems with which we're dealing, that you do say that we are living in a moment in which there are threats or there are pressures on some of the, the basic foundations for the kind of reconciliation of democracy and truth. So what are those pressures and why are we living in a, a somewhat distinct moment now?
1: Right. And I mean, you know, in this sense, I'm, I'm really typical of a historian, right? I, it's, that must be a, a kind of uh, curse of being a historian in a way, is that on the one hand, you always see the ways in which contemporary issues have backstories. Um, there's a long history of everything from fake news to people wringing their hands about the existence of fake news. Rumors, all of these things are not new to our moment. So any historian will give you a a longer version of what's going on right now. There's been crises about truth in almost every uh, era. They just take slightly different forms. On the other hand, we also know that history doesn't repeat itself and that when there's a crisis in truth right now, it has different contours than earlier ones. And that can be for a variety of reasons. Um, What makes this moment different certainly is, in part, a product of new technologies. Uh, There's no doubt that most of what we've thought of as our speech environment and our speech laws, for instance, were written for a kind of uh, information-poor world, not an an overload of information to the degree we have today, so that we've hardly kept pace with our own technology. But technology doesn't exist by itself either. There's also a, a legal and political environment that's allowed for the deregulation of media to a degree that... Um, The nature of news and entertainment delivery is also changed considerably and not just because of technological pressures uh, that have created a new media landscape over the last 10, 15 years. That's particularly in the U.S., but not exclusively. And there are larger currents, too, that are fundamental to this story. I think one of them is is perhaps the biggest story of our times or two of the biggest stories of our times. The growing uh, inequalities within most so-called advanced uh, states have produced very little by way of common culture to begin with, regardless of the internet or um, talk radio or Fox News. We live in a world in which it's increasingly the case that elites live in a really different world not just financially but as a knockoff of effect educationally culturally even geographically than do many other people that does not help create a kind of culture of common truths there's very little that's agreed on as even a baseline starting point for thinking about the world these days combined with the sense that many of the problems in the world i think seem really intractable, and um, so, you know, the destruction of the planet, um, the numbers of people who are stateless today seem like problems that are beyond the capacity of any state to begin to tackle their kind of global scale problems. I think that too exacerbates a situation in which any claims to have a handle on any situation seem like either Hubris, or just a matter of spin, and so there are there are both s- small reasons and really large uh, systemic reasons that it is actually par- harder today, perhaps than in some other moments, to imagine a common enough foundation that we could agree even on some basic truths, or even about how we might find some basic truths, or even whether it's possible to find some basic truths, than perhaps in other moments, which is not to say that every, that this is this, I'm a little skeptical about post-truth, because it sounds like uh, there was all this truth, and then we fell off a cliff, and now we're post-truth, and we've all sort of agreed that there's no truth left. I would say more that we're in a moment of a battle over who gets to define truth that's perpetual but in another sense, flares up in particular ways at particular moments. And this is one of those moments of flare up. And who's going to prevail is really still an open question.
0: One of the interesting aspects of that post-truth question, whether we're living in a distinct moment, is, and you mentioned this in the book, is the extent to which people have taken the analysis of the the kind of analysis that you give about the conditions under which truth claims do not seem as binding to everyone and they they have created a narrative that seems quite resonant in many places that it's actually what might they might describe as something like postmodernism which is itself responsible for the the corrosion of truth claims and it's interesting you 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 respond and critique this argument Though I'm curious, kind of, why it seems so resonant in the sense that it it suggests a, a very small group of intellectuals and uh, a, a kind of an intellectual movement can have such force that it would actually destabilize truth claims as we know them. It's just interesting to me that that's actually still resonant. And I, if you would indulge in some yeah. speculation, I'd be curious to hear why you think that kind of a anti uh, postmodernism narrative still seems so resonant that you see it in so many places.
1: Yeah, isn't it interesting? I was really struck by that too, how many people used the opportunity to sort of say, no, it's not something that's inherent in American political discourse or it's not something that the Republican Party has cooked up in the last 20 years. No, what we really have here is a case of postmodernism run amok. Um, and now, we are stuck with the consequences to me that really doesn't make sense either intellectually or in a really practical way as a an explanation of causation i mean your your explanation just now was a very good one i think which is to say it seems so improbable that a left wing left wing discourse that was largely confined to literature departments, it, postmodernism was never central to the social sciences, for instance, like economics in recent decades, it turned out to have this kind of large cultural impact to the degree that it ended up permeating political culture, and particularly the political culture of the right in recent decades, and left kind of liberals clinging to um the ideas of experts in fields like economics and sociology i mean it just doesn't There's nothing about that narrative seems to me persuasive and of course there are everyone can find a favorite quote from somebody you know bannon evokes the name of jacques derrida and as if that's sort of a clue to everything that's ever happened uh, that seems to me more a case of two things that look a little bit alike in a superficial way, being assumed to have some kind of real connection, and that the only people who really have an interest in forwarding this narrative are people who were interested in the first place in a kind of anti-postmodernist discourse, and that might be among some journalists or some scholars. But even that is a minority current. Most people have no idea who Jacques Derrida is, and even if the ideas were explained to them, they would have no... They would not seem particularly connected to anything to do with politics today. Most people, um, right or left, I think, are not convinced that all truths are the same so much as they disagree about where truth might best be located. And that has very little to do with the claims of postmodern theorists. On the contrary, I think you might say quite the opposite, that we would be less attentive today to the historicity of truth were it not for people like foucault who whether or not they got the analysis right or not opened up some really important questions about how different regimes generate ideas of truth
0: i think that's a very helpful way to think about better ways and worse ways of talking about truth and politics and history um, from the, the rich account that you give to the, the account that you critique there at the end is a helpful way to see those different kinds of approaches to, to, to so. epistemology and politics in a, in a very concise way so it's uh, just to end i was curious i am inclined to ask what next project you're working on you introduced some of your thinking on uh, the next project on choice so i was wondering if there's anything more you'd like to say about that project or or where your thinking from that came as well
1: sure and i i mean it talk about the ways in which the real world and intellectual life intersect i was heavily involved in working on a book on the history of choice. It's now already overdue, I'm sure. Um, And I was thinking about choice growing out of an interest in the long history of human rights. And suddenly in 2016, that seemed less urgent. It seemed to me more like I was writing a history of liberalism in a moment that was turning away from liberalism rather decisively. And so I turned my attention to something that seemed more timely. But I do intend to go back to this project on choice and I will soon because the, with some time away from it, I've come to see that it doesn't have to be a history of liberalism. i not, not really interested in writing that story. It's really a history much more of modern life and thought. And my idea for how to do this is again to in some ways to take up this problem of philosophical history again in some ways to you know keep going and i might sound like a broken record at this point about this problem about epistemology and politics but i want to try this time to see if i can write an intellectual history that comes out of the study of social practices rather than out of thought um I tried a little bit to do that already in much of my earlier work, but this time I'd really like to see if I can write an intellectual history that takes up things people do, voting, social dancing, shopping, etc., and use those opportunities to generate a history of ideas that doesn't start with Kant, which is where a lot of histories of freedom start, for instance, but start with ordinary activities people do that involve making choices or selections out of kinds of menus of options and start to understand how those practices become so mainstreamed that they become ubiquitous but also get attached to notions of freedom along the way so i guess that's the real methodological challenge here um, and i hope it'll result in a book that is not only of interest to people interested in the history of freedom but is it might potentially at least of interest to people who are really thinking now about um, all those kind of jargony terms like choice architecture and um, paternalistic liberalism and all the sorts of things that are uh, current in fields like behavioral economics, but which are often a, a little obscure for historians.
0: That sounds really interesting and I look forward to hearing and reading more about it.
1: I look forward to having more of it to read.
0: (laughs) Well, thank you so much for joining us.